and we will read verses 1 through 7. Now hear God's word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. And as always, let us pray together as we come to God's holy word now. Our God and our Father, we give you praise for your word which is alive, which is active, which is full of the Holy Spirit's power which gives life, which sustains life, which transforms life by the renewing of our minds. And so we ask this morning, Holy Spirit, be with us. Give us your help to see and to understand, and not just to understand, but Father, to accept, and not just to accept, but to trust, to lean, to put our full confidence in your holy word and in you, who are the revealer of this word. And so, Father, be with us, and may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This passage this morning in the beginning of Acts chapter 19 makes me think of a well-known quote by William Booth in the 1800s and also about a well-known prediction that the Apostle Paul made 2,000 years ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of 2 Timothy. The prediction is this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy, his dear son in the faith, his faithful disciple, he tells him this, he says, Timothy, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Timothy, avoid such people. And here, now, in the year 2021, it's not difficult to see 
how prophetic that prediction was, right? And it's the last characteristic of of that kind of ungodliness that Paul describes in verse 5 of that passage that I think of when I think about our text here in the opening verses of Acts 19, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. It's easy, relatively at least, it's easy to identify fleshliness and ungodliness and sinfulness in all of the other ways that Paul lists there in that passage in 2 Timothy, right? Lovers of self, we can identify those. That's the biblical terminology for what psychologists now call narcissism. And you can smell them, feel them, and identify them pretty easily, right? Lovers of money, easy to identify that in our world. People who are proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, entitled, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, the kinds of people who refuse to live at peace with others and always need to have conflict in their lives, always destroying relationships, never willing to reconcile them. People who are slanderous, people who have no self-control, Brutal people who have no empathy or compassion or mercy and seem to thrive on causing pain, just turn on the news. People who don't love what is good. People who are treacherous. People who are traitorous. They have no sense of loyalty. They're reckless. They're swollen, Paul says, with conceit. They're literally bloated with pride. Our country is full of people who are lovers of pleasure instead of being lovers of God. It's easy to identify, right? If all of those are the, are the biblical diagnostics of how human sin manifests itself in, in, the, in the lives of sinful people and in this world, then it's really easy to see that the real pandemic in our world is not biological, it's spiritual. Because all of that sort of stuff, all of those spiritual pathologies that Paul lists there are rampant in the world today. And it's endemic. But again, it's the one at the end of the list that's a little bit harder to detect, right? People who have the appearance of godliness, but who deny its power. All of those people in our world and all around us who who aren't the raging, brutal, abusive, unappeasable, slanderous, heartless narcissists, right? They're the nicest sinners you'd ever want to meet. They don't seem to lack self-control. They don't seem to be ungrateful or particularly unholy, outwardly at least. By outward appearances, they seem to be godly people. But inwardly, they're denying and therefore lacking the power that leads to genuine godliness and spiritual fruitfulness. How do we know who those people are? How do we respond to people like that? What do we do about them? I I believe that it was those kinds of people that Paul encountered during his third missionary journey in his return visit to Ephesus here in Acts 19 and verses 1 through 7. And these verses also make me think, I told you of a quote by William Booth that you might have come across a time or two in your lives. He said this, and this was... This was in the 1800s. This was more than 200 years ago now that he said this. He said, I consider 
that the chief dangers which confront the coming century, so he meant the the 1900s, right, the 20th century, and and now, of course, we're in the 21st century. He said, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without, without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. And again, not difficult to see how prophetic that statement was, right? More than 200 years ago, even though he didn't say that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit like like Paul did in, in the book of 2 Timothy. Clearly we see endemic to the spirit of this age in the 21st century, the reality and the, the, the fallout of politics without God, right? It's going on in Russia. It's going on in America. And we could spend all day counting the ways that the fallout of politics without God impacts this world, but we won't. And we know that people who believe in heaven are often apt and all often do deny the reality of hell. And they're certainly living, many of them, as if a place of eternal judgment doesn't exist. And because of that, they've seriously deteriorated their concept of the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God, which has then had a corrosive impact on the gospel. And so all kinds of people emphasize the forgiveness of sin, but without the need of repentance from sin, which leads to a kind of version of Christianity without the true Christ because there's no perceived need of the kind of Savior that He truly is. So it doesn't matter to people now if He's all the fullness of deity in bodily form or not. And the nature of His work on the cross also gets denied or maligned or redefined. And so instead of becoming our substitute who bore the full weight of the wrath and condemnation of God in our place on the cross, He just becomes a good example for us to follow of how to be loving people as we work our way towards favor with God by doing the best that we can. And all of that results in an idea of salvation that doesn't require regeneration and a form of religion that doesn't depend on the supernatural divine power and presence of God the Holy Spirit. The appearance of godliness but denying its power, right? Is that not a perfect description of the kind of uh, outside of the cup, pharisaical, formalistic religiosity that characterizes what we now call evangelicalism in the 21st century. And it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing of eternal proportions when people are being taught and are believing in a form of religion that actually lacks any power to save their souls, to crucify their sinful hearts, 
and to raise them up to newness of life in Christ Jesus, to unite them to the risen person of Christ and to all of the benefits of His work on the cross and all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that can only come by being in Him. I'll tell you this, Satan loves atheism. He does. He's the father of all lies, and especially those that would, that would go so far as to deny the very existence of God. But one of his most pernicious lies, and one of his most subtle and seductive and successful schemes as the angel of light who he is, is to deceive people into believing in God and in a form of godliness while they're denying its true power. To deceive people into believing in a salvation without regeneration. And the need to be reborn of water and of spirit. The need to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised up with Him to newness of life and and to be made new creations in Him. Satan loves to deceive people into believing in a religion that they call Christianity. But it's not the result of, and it doesn't result in, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that on the day of God's final judgment, there will be many, many people who will say to Him, Lord, our Lord, our Lord, we prophesied in Your name. We cast out demons in Your name. We did mighty works in Your name, Lord. But Jesus will say to them, I never knew You. So depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, how horrifying is that? How unfathomably tragic That will be when these lost sinners who held to a form of godliness but denied its real power, who espoused a kind of salvation but it didn't involve regeneration, who didn't have the Holy Spirit, when they fall into the hands of the Holy God. It is a fearful thing, Hebrews 10.31 says, to fall into the hands of the living God if your soul is not alive in Him. And so the gospel that we proclaim had better be the biblical gospel and not the one that denies the power of God unto salvation and everlasting life and the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating dead hearts that are growing and that are thriving in increasing holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12.14 says. But that holiness, when it's the genuine work of the Holy Spirit and a heart that He's indwelt and made alive and is empowering, is, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.11, is, that holiness is the way toward the eternal kingdom of heaven. In verses 1-7 through of Acts 19, this is what we see Paul dealing with with a group of twelve disciples in the city of Ephesus. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were followers, but they were not regenerate. And so as we come now into chapter 19, remember that last time we saw in the end of chapter 18, 
the end of Paul's second main missionary journey, which took him all the way to Macedonia and Greece and ultimately to the great city of Corinth, remember? And then he left from Corinth, we saw last week, made a stop in Ephesus, remember? Where he was well received in the synagogue as he preached the gospel. They asked him to stay. But God's will for him was to return home in order to visit the church in Jerusalem and then go back down to Antioch in Syria to visit the believers there in that place where the gospel had first come to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. So that's what verse 22 of chapter 18 says that Paul did. He went home. And then in verse 23, Luke sort of hits the, hits the fast-forward button and tells us that after spending some time there in Antioch, Paul left again and traveled from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You remember the region of Galatia and Phrygia was where Paul had traveled with Barnabas during their first missionary journey, way back around the year 48 A.D., and now it's about four or five years after that first missionary journey, and he's, he's stopping back at many of the places that he'd visited before and strengthening the believers and the churches in those cities with the Word of God, those churches that had been planted four or five years earlier and were now growing in those cities. And of course, in verses 24 through 28 of, of chapter 18, we saw last week that episode in Ephesus with uh, the learned, erudite Jewish man named Apollos. He was skilled in the Word. He was a good teacher. He was eloquent. But he needed a little bit of help theologically because he had some holes in his doctrine. And so Aquila and Priscilla, these blue-collar tent makers, came along and helped him to understand what was a misunderstanding or a limitation of his understanding with regard to the baptism of John and how it pointed to the greater baptism of Jesus Christ. And so the point last time with that issue was the gentleness with which Aquila and Priscilla brought this help and teaching to Apollos, and the humility with which Apollos gladly and gratefully received the help so that he could be even more effective in teaching and preaching the Word of God. But, but Luke, last time, didn't really explain to us what exactly this specific hole in Apollos' theology was with relation to the baptism of John, and our text here today helps to fill that in and makes this critically important point about the nature of the true Christian faith that is so essential for us to grasp and understand. So in verse 1 of chapter 19 now, Luke says that Apollos has moved on from Ephesus over to the west and now he's in Corinth and that Paul now, having gone through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, comes down from the north back to Ephesus. Now it's the year 54 A.D., so it's been three full years since Paul was last in Ephesus at the end last week of the second missionary journey when the Jews in the synagogue asked him to say, and, and he said, no, i got to go, but if it is the will of the Lord, I will return to you, remember? Now he's, now he's doing it, he's returning three years later. And there in Ephesus, the end of verse 1 says, Paul found some disciples. 
Verse 7 tells us there were about 12 of them, a dozen of them. Disciples, the Greek word mathetes, students, learners, followers. That's what the word means. And ordinarily, when we encounter this word in the New Testament, we think of it as being synonymous with, with Christians, right? Disciples of Christ are Christians, right? Well, it turns out, not always. Not in the truest sense, at least. Not always. First of all, not everyone called a disciple in the New Testament was a disciple and a student and a follower of Jesus. John the Baptist had disciples, the Gospels tell us. The Pharisees had disciples, students, followers. Matheton, Mark and Luke say, who were obviously not followers of Jesus. They were followers of the Pharisees. And then furthermore, not everyone in the New Testament who called themselves a disciple of Jesus, a follower of His, truly was actually a Christian. I mean, every true Christian, every true Christian is a disciple of Jesus, a student, a follower, a learner. But not every disciple of Jesus is truly a Christian. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, right? Only to hear his reply, I never knew you. And the Apostle John says in John 6 and verse 66 that there were all kinds of people who were following Jesus. John calls them mathetone, disciples. But at a certain point, when they didn't like certain things that Jesus was teaching in John 6, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him, no longer walked with him. Because as it turned out, they weren't really saved. They didn't really believe. They didn't really have living faith. Maybe they had some understanding, some appreciation, but not true living faith. And the Bible teaches, doesn't it, that we are saved eternally by God's grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2. And the Bible teaches that there are some kinds of faith that cannot save. Correct? James chapter 2 and verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, Faith apart from works is useless. In verse 19, James says, You believe that God is one. You have faith in the nature of God. Good job, even the demons believe. Same word. And they shudder. They're not saved. They have a kind of faith in God, but they're not saved through that kind of faith. See? And so theologically, what we glean all throughout God's Word about saving faith is that it always must include three distinct aspects or ingredients, if you will. 
And theologians, as we, we always do, refer to these things with Latin words. The three Latin words, noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. True faith that is a gift from God and through which salvation comes has to have all three or else it cannot save. First one, noticia, refers to the object of faith. You've got to believe in the right thing, right? You can't just believe in anything. We have to believe in the right thing. And the object of saving faith is, of course, Jesus. Faith has to understand the truth that the Bible reveals about who Jesus is and everything that He has done in order to save us. So at the bottom level, faith always involves this, this intellectual understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what noticia means. And secondly, saving faith that God gives also involves ascensus, like assent, not just understanding the truth, but agreeing with it. I understand what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and what He's done to save people from their sins, and I assent to it. There are plenty of people who understand biblical teaching and Christian theology in an intellectually accurate way, but they don't accept it. They say, I understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus, but, but I don't accept that teaching as being valid or true. So that kind of faith can't save them. They don't assent to it. So true saving faith that God graciously gives understands, but it's not just bare intellectualism. It also assents. It accepts. Noticia and ascensus. Here's the thing. All of the demons in James 2.19, James says, have both understanding and assent. They understand the truth that God reveals. They, they, they even admit that it's true. They accept that it's true. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Jesus did die on a cross. His sacrifice is actually the only sufficient payment for sin, but they're not saved from their sin, right? And so they tremble and shudder before the Holy God that they believe in because true faith, God-given faith, living faith, saving faith, has to also include this third ingredient that theologians call fiducia which means conviction, confidence, trust, reliance. It means to lean on, to put your weight on something. That's what the demons don't do, and that's what unbelievers don't do. The demons understand the truth about God. They even accept it as valid, as real. They don't they don't, they don't trust it, though. They don't put their confidence in that truth and in Jesus, who is the object of that faith. They don't trust Him. They don't rely on Him. Neither did the disciples in John 6 and verse 66. They understood. They accepted to a point, but because they didn't trust Jesus, because they didn't rely on Jesus, eventually they fell away from Him. And so in doing that, they showed that their faith wasn't true faith, wasn't living faith, wasn't saving faith. Not all disciples of Jesus Christ are actually Christians, are actually saved, because the faith that they have in Jesus is incomplete. But true Christians are always disciples of Jesus Christ, students, learners, followers, 
Because when we don't just understand and accept, but we also trust and depend on and rely on Jesus as the Savior and the Lord who He is, then the way that we live changes, doesn't it? Invariably and necessarily. Let's have an illustration of this, and I asked Spencer to help me. You want to help me? He doesn't really want to help me, but he's going to come help me. We're going to have an illustration of true faith. So come up here. Come over here. I have two bottles of water here. One of them has not been opened straight from Costco. You drink these every day. One of them has been opened. Which one do you want? Okay, well, too bad. You can't have that one. <laughs> you are going to have the one that has already been opened, and I am going to tell you that there is nothing but purified water in the bottle. Okay. Now, do you understand what water is? And do you accept that water, so that's notitia, you understand what water is, do you accept that water is safe to drink and good and healthy for you? Yeah. Okay, so that's a sensus. Do you trust that there's water in here? Yeah. Do you trust me not to have put something bad for you in here? Yeah. <laughs> then drink the water. And this is faith. When it trusts, it acts. See? And so faith without works, good job. You can go sit down. You're all done. <laughs> Keep an eye on him in case he passes out because... Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, true faith acts because it trusts, see? If he doesn't drink the water because he doesn't trust, the water doesn't do him any good, and faith without works can't save you, see? So this is, this is how it works biblically. True faith, trusting faith, acts, obeys, follows, grows in obedience as it learns more and more to trust Christ more and more. And that living, saving faith is something that's not natural to sinful human beings, see? Because the natural state of our hearts and souls is that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, God's Word says. And so what we do when we encounter the truth is we suppress it. Whether intellectually or at least volitionally, we won't trust it. We suppress it in our unrighteousness. Even if we understand it, we, we don't always accept it. Even if we accept it, we don't always trust it. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God and does not submit to God's law because it cannot, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to know them because they're spiritually discerned. And the spirit, the, the spiritual part of the natural person who is born in sin is dead. Towards God, It is unable to accept the things of God's Spirit unless and until the Spirit of God raises it up to newness of life. It's what we call regeneration. It's what Jesus called in John chapter 3, being born again of the Spirit. Now this is where the disciples, the mathetone here in 
Acts chapter 19 that Paul encountered in Ephesus, this is, this is what they were lacking. This is where they were coming up short. They had heard, they had understood, they had accepted the truth, and they were following. They were disciples, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. They'd never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so they weren't, see, truly Christians. Because being truly a Christian does not first and foremost depend on what you do. It depends on what God does to you. Luke tells us here that when Paul asked them about their baptism, they replied that they'd only been baptized into John's baptism. And he means John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was a forerunner to Jesus. He was a, a prophet of God. He's actually the la- We think the last Old Testament prophet is Malachi, but it's not Malachi, it's John. He's the last prophet of God before the new covenant is inaugurated in the blood of Jesus Christ. And John's special calling was to point to Jesus as the true Messiah and the only Savior of sinful people. And so before that happened, before Jesus came onto the scene and was identified by John as the true Messiah, John was baptizing people as a prophet of God in the Jordan River and telling them they needed to repent of their sins because the kingdom of God was at hand. Why? Because the king himself is at hand. He's my cousin, John says. And many people were baptized by John and by John's disciples before they understood who the true Messiah was and what kind of kingdom he had come to establish and how his death on the cross and his his resurrection from the dead were the only things that could ever cover and remove their sins and give them everlasting life in this kingdom of God. And even while John was baptizing people and calling them to, to repent of their sins, to turn away from their sins... Before Jesus came onto the scene, John spoke about Jesus. He said, there's someone coming who's greater than me. Don't put your full confidence in me. I'm telling you to turn from your sin, but but that's not going to do it for you to get to the kingdom. You're going to have to be washed from your sin by one who is mightier than me. And this guy, John says, this true Messiah is so great that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And when he comes, he's going to give a a far greater baptism than I can give. Because while I baptize you with water, John says, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John, all four Gospels, John the Baptist says... Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so this was the true message of John the Baptist. It's not just that people need to stop sinning and be baptized with water, but that this act of water baptism is just a sign, a picture that points to something greater, that points to Jesus Himself, who doesn't just baptize us physically with water, but who baptizes us spiritually with the Holy Spirit. And so, water baptism is always this God-given picture of the spiritual baptism 
of the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit that is performed on our hearts by Jesus Christ. It's the picture of, see, water baptism pictures washing dirt off the body. And that is an illustration of the greater need, the spiritual need for our souls to be washed by God from all of the impurity of sin. Because your attempts to just stop sinning are never going to make you right with God. He's got to wash you. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Right? And so these disciples in Ephesus, and remember, Apollos used to be like this. He used to be one of them until Aquila and Priscilla helped him to understand. These people now, they've all heard about John the Baptist. They've been baptized by disciples of John the Baptist all these years later, but they haven't realized yet the full reality of the one that John pointed to and the reality of the better baptism of being baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit, of course, is not like some false teachers like to teach. He is not just this impersonal force or power that God wields and exerts in order to accomplish His his will in our lives and in the world. The Holy Spirit is a person because all throughout scriptures he is referred to with the personal masculine pronoun he. He's a person and he is worshipped everywhere in scripture by God's people which reveals to us that he is God because even the angels refuse to be bowed down to and worshipped. And they rebuke people for worshipping anyone or anything except for God himself. The one true God is a triune God. Amen? Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord, Yahweh, is one. Echad in Hebrew. One single essence. There are not many gods. There are not three gods. There is only one true God. And His covenant name, which He took for Himself in Exodus 3, is Yahweh. That that personal form of the Hebrew verb to be. Literally translated, I am. That's, That's the name God takes for Himself because He's the one who just is. He's the one whose existence doesn't depend on anything else. His existence is wholly in Himself. He's got no beginning. He'll never have an end. He's uncreated. He's self-existing. He just is in and of Himself alone. And He says in Deuteronomy 6.4, this Yahweh who is God is one. Only one. And at the same time, the word that He uses there for God is a plural word. It's the word Elohim in Hebrew. El, E-L, is the singular form of the word God in Hebrew. And if you add im, I-M, onto the end of a word in Hebrew, that's the masculine plural suffix. So, Yahweh, the great I Am, says, I am Elohim, and I am one. Isn't that beautiful? And the great mystery of what that means gets revealed all throughout the progression of Scripture, which teaches us that this one God eternally exists in three distinct persons. Not parts, 
Not modes, not aspects. Persons of the one essence of God. And they are known as Father, the only begotten Son, who is incarnate in the person of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified because He is equal with them as the one God Elohim. John the Baptist said when the Messiah comes, when Jesus, who is God, comes, He's not just going to baptize your body with water like I do. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit who is also God. Isn't this glorious? For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, doesn't matter. We were all made to drink of the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Every true Christian who by living faith in Jesus Christ has been saved has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Immersed into Him. Washed by Him. Cleansed from all sin by Him. And so Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 13, In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so... Put it all together. Being saved by grace through living faith in Jesus Christ means being baptized with the Holy Spirit, being washed and cleansed from our sin. And and it means being sealed by the Holy Spirit like the signet ring on a king's finger sealing a legal document and making it binding legally by His great authority. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit with whom we are baptized and cleansed from our sin guarantees the eternal inheritance that is promised to everyone who is saved by grace in Jesus. And Paul teaches that all who are saved, all who are baptized with the Holy Spirit, all who are sealed by Him for the eternal inheritance of everlasting life with God are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As God the Holy Spirit comes into our spirits and abides, dwells in us, making us to be His temples. 1 Corinthians 6, right? Verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? And so you are not your own. You can't do with this body what you want to do anymore because this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as he moves in, he makes it his business to clean house so that his temple is not defiled with sinful impurities. Glorify God in your body, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And... As amazing as all of that is, Paul goes on and reveals to us in places like Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2, what it actually means to be baptized by Jesus, the Son, with 
the Holy Spirit. And what he says is that it means that in baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, Jesus baptizes us into himself, uniting us to himself spiritually and also to his sacrificial and redeeming work for us that he performed on the cross. So Romans 6 verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, immersed into Him spiritually, were baptized into His death, such that we died with Him spiritually, buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this is what it all means to be a Christian, see? To be saved by grace through faith means to be baptized spiritually by Jesus Christ with God the Holy Spirit washing us and cleansing us with divine supernatural power and the presence of the Holy Spirit from all our sinful stains and sealing us with Himself as the guarantee of eternal life and inheritance and indwelling us as living temples. And because God the Holy Spirit is God and because Jesus Christ is God and they are together with the Father eternally and forever united as the three distinct persons in the one being who is alone God. See, by indwelling us, the Holy Spirit unites us to the one He is united to, to Jesus, and to everything that Jesus has done for us on the cross, so that Jesus' death becomes our death spiritually. The death of our spiritual selves that were in bondage, to the dominion of sin. And Jesus' resurrection becomes our resurrection unto newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, baptized with the Holy Spirit into Christ, then he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A holy new spiritual self raised up with Christ and freed and liberated from the dominion of sin and death. So that even though sin remains in our flesh and our bodies which haven't been fully redeemed yet because they're still perishable, they get old, they get creaky, they die. Even though sin remains in us, it does not reign over us anymore. Because inwardly we have, made to be, we have been made to be new creations in Christ. Freed from that dominion and able now to trust and obey. Made able by living faith to walk with Christ in growing trust, in growing reliance, in growing obedience. And being transformed more and more each day by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, being conformed more and more each day to the image of Jesus. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8.29 That's what it means to be a Christian. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of His glory from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 The one with whom Jesus baptizes us and seals us and who indwells us and who unites us to Jesus, to whom He is eternally united, and to His perfect and finished work, to His death, to His resurrection, to His life, and to the life-transforming image of His glory. That's what it means. All of that and nothing short of all of that is what it means to be a Christian. It's far more than knowing about Christ, right? And understanding things about Christ, right? And having the right doctrines and theologies about Christ, right? It's not just knowing about Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's being in Christ and in His death and resurrection. Being a Christian is far more than just trying in your own strength as your own natural self to be like Christ. It means being in Christ as a new creation. It means far more than just outward forms of religious devotion. It means nothing short of death and resurrection. It means far more than than simple imitation of Christ. It means regeneration and whole life transformation into the image of His glory from one level of glory to the next. You remember that story in in John 3 when Nicodemus, the Pharisee, snuck out and came secretly by night so that none of his Christ-hating colleagues among the other Pharisees would know that he was coming to meet with Jesus. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, you know what? Even if they don't admit it, we know that you're from God. Because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And so Jesus, sensing an openness, said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, here's the bottom line, Nicodemus. Here's what you need to know more than anything at all, Nicodemus. Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you remember Nicodemus got a little confused? What does it mean to be born again? You can't go back in your mom's womb, can you? And Jesus made it clear, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit of God is spirit. John 3, verses 5-6. through six. So these disciples in Ephesus, even though they had an understanding and even an acceptance of the truth of God's Word. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They only knew about John's baptism. They hadn't yet been baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. They hadn't yet been saved. They hadn't yet been washed spiritually from their sins. They hadn't yet been indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and united to Christ and crucified with Him and raised up with Him to newness of life. And so there was, even though they were doing stuff outwardly that looked right, there was no divine power or presence within them which was necessary for them to be born again in order to be able to see the kingdom of God. 
They needed to be made new creations in Christ and then begin this lifelong journey of becoming more and more conformed to the image of His glory as they learn to trust Him more and more. And so, Paul says, we got to finish the journey here. we got to baptize you not just in John's baptism, but in the name of Jesus Christ. And so he did. Because baptizing people in the name of Jesus Christ is what Jesus commanded and ordained in Matthew 28. Water baptism in His name to be the sign, the divinely ordained picture of Jesus' spiritual baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul did that, and they submitted to that, and they believed in Jesus in that way, the Holy Spirit came upon them, verse 6 says. And immediately they started to do what all the people had done way back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was first poured out on the New Covenant Church. They started speaking in tongues and prophesying. And you can go back and listen to those earlier sermons from Acts 2 to remember the significance of those things, which were God's unique ways in the early days of the fledgling church and the times of the apostles, before the New Testament Scriptures had been written and the the canon had been completed. This This is God's way of indicating that the Holy Spirit had come upon His people, come into His people and saved them and raised them supernaturally with Christ Jesus to newness of life. And so that's what happened to these men. They went from being just outward followers to being in Christ, to being buried with Him in spiritual baptism with the Holy Spirit and raised with Him to newness of life. They were given the seal of an eternal inheritance. And they were given the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling them to transform them on an ongoing basis from one glory, one level of glory to the next into the image of Christ. Nothing short of that is what it means to be a Christian. And we must never settle for a hollow shell of outward formalistic religiosity that is empty and devoid of the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit. Because religion without the Holy Spirit and salvation without regeneration cannot save anyone from the wrath of God that is to come. Salvation without regeneration and religion without the Holy Spirit is a not-so-cleverly-disguised deception of the devil that leads people straight into the gaping jaws of everlasting hell. And sadly and tragically, that is what has become mainstream in evangelicalism in the 21st century. Just this outward form. Just look at Jesus as an example. He doesn't... He didn't die to appease God's wrath. Let's not talk about wrath. Let's just talk about sorrow. Let's just talk about loneliness and how Jesus is the solution to that for you. And as you learn to appreciate Him more and more like that and follow His good example, you can become a better... This is what's being taught as the Gospel and it's not the Gospel. It's a, it's a form of religion without the power to save And it leads to a religion without the Holy Spirit and to salvation without true regeneration. 
Christians preach Christ and Him crucified and call people to be baptized in His name and by Him with the Holy Spirit into Him, into His death, into His resurrection. Because eternal life means nothing short of death and resurrection with Jesus and in Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again we ask, and Holy Spirit, we plead, would you help us to understand the truth and the significance and the importance of these things, that we might be true lights in the darkness of this world and be able effectively by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, to call people to repent and believe in Jesus and be washed by Him with the Holy Spirit and raised to newness of life forever. And Father, for those of us who have been so washed and filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Would you give us confidence that we belong to you, that we have been sealed for this everlasting inheritance, that our lives are not our own, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit of God, that he indwells and abides in us and that his presence gives us the power that we need to mortify sin every single day and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ every single day and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and conformed into the image of his glory. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, be with us and lead us and guide us and strengthen us and cleanse us and wash us and grow us for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.